For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Dur Show. Uh, in my letters, I'm always asked about things that are on my wall, pictures and signatures and paintings and memorabilia. And so every so often I like to do a show where I give my viewers and my listeners uh, an inside view into my collection. I'm, I'm a collector. Uh, from the time I was a kid, I, I collected string and 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 uh, uh, you know you name it I collected I collected comic books I collected bat bottle tops I collected everything you can imagine and I've continued to collect all my life um, when I was a kid of course I had no money so the only things I was able to collect were comic books that cost a dime I wish I had held on to my early Superman and Captain Marvel uh, comics but my mother threw them all out as she did my baseball card collection, and my little autograph book. I had a little spiral notepad in which I got the autographs of baseball players, mostly Brooklyn Dodgers, because I went to high school four blocks away from Evans Field. Uh, I, I went to high school on President Street and Bedford Avenue, and uh, Evans Field was on Bedford uh, Avenue. And so I would go to the games and get autographs. Sometimes we would meet the players, like Carl Ferrillo, at the subway station and we would walk with him to the stadium and then he would sign our little books. We all had little spiral notebooks and I had all the Dodger signatures uh, uh, in them. Um, uh, and my mother threw them out. I, somebody once got me a shirt and saying, I used to be a millionaire, but then my mother threw out my baseball card. So I like that shirt because that uh, reflects. I'm not a, a millionaire when it comes to collecting sports memorabilia, but I have a really, really nice sports collection. And let, let's uh, talk about that a little bit because it reflects the history of the United States. For example, the first thing I'm gonna show you is a signed baseball signed by all the players who went to play in Japan in 1933. Uh, remember, 33 is just uh, eight years before uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor and, and, and seven years before was six years before the beginning of, uh, of the Second World War, but an American baseball team was assembled to go and play exhibition baseball uh, in, in um, uh, Japan. And um, somebody got them all to sign this baseball, which is really a piece of history. At the center is a beautiful autograph of, of Babe Ruth, a really, really nice or clean autograph of Babe Ruth. Right underneath the autograph of Babe Ruth, is uh, Lou Gehrig, uh, again, one of the, the greatest uh, ball players uh, in history. And there are so many other uh, terrific, terrific uh, players. And that's not the reason I bought this ball. I bought this ball largely because of somebody's signature on the bottom of it who didn't deserve to be on this team, who was probably the worst player on this team. Uh, he was a catcher, wasn't even the starting catcher, backup catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Good fielder, good catcher, terrible hitter. 
um, couldn't hit a curveball, and you know batted in the low 200s. And 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 why was he invited to join the Japanese uh, tour on behalf of the United States? And why did he sign the ball? Uh, first, let me tell you who he is. His name was Mo Berg, a Jewish kid, I think from Brooklyn, uh, who made it uh, by hard work and determination onto the Brooklyn Dodger baseball team. He is not in the Hall of Fame or even close to it, uh, although he deserves to be in the CIA's Hall of Fame. Uh, why is he famous? Because the reason he was put on this baseball team was not his hitting prowess, certainly, and not even his catching prowess. He was a spy. He spoke, I think, seven languages, including fluently spoke Japanese. And so he was put on the baseball team. He was also a photographer in order to photograph Japanese military installations. He pretended just to be a tourist with his camera and went around and he photographed everything. And he predicted um, the invasion of Pearl Harbor and how it would come and <clears throat> where it would come. And so I bought this ball, not because it has Babe Ruth's signature, but because it has Moberg's signature because it tells us a bit of history relating to the beginning of the Second World War. Um, that's my favorite uh, baseball, and it's uh, you know quite a treasure. My second favorite baseball is um, the rookie year that uh, Jackie Robinson broke in with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and this is a ball signed by all the Dodgers. Um, so you have you know Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, and uh, at the time, of course, Jackie Robinson was the only African-American on the team. Ultimately, uh, many more would, would join. But this has uh, Gil Hodges, but obviously the primary signature that I was interested in uh, is Jackie Robinson's. The ball, you know, is dark through age, but it's a really a piece of history. Jackie Robinson's first year in, in the majors. Uh, in addition to Jackie Robinson's um, uh, baseball the first year, I also have the ring that the Brooklyn Dodgers won in 1947, the year Jackie Robinson broke in. He won the Rookie of the Year, and the Dodgers won the National League pennant. And they were, of course, awarded a ring, which says uh, Brooklyn baseball team, Dodgers, uh, Brooklyn has a little diamond. Um, and um, the man who sold it to me uh, says that it was Jackie Robinson's ring. Obviously, I have no proof of that. He gave me a story that would justify why it was his ring. Um, don't know whether there's any uh, truth to it at all. And it's, it's not that important because it doesn't have his name on it. And, but it does have the year he broke in. So it's, it's, it's really, really significant to me. Uh, those are my earliest, um, some of my early memories of baseball in 1947. But I have a baseball which reminds me of the most negative memory I had. And this was during the High Holy Days of 1951. I had just been bar mitzvahed, <clears throat> and I was about to go off to the synagogue. It was Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The Brooklyn Dodgers had been eight games ahead of the New York Giants in the 1951 season in August. And then the Giants cat caught up and the Dodgers fell apart. And the, the, the pennant... There were no playoffs in those days. The pennant uh, was dependent on the last game of the season, and the Dodgers were ahead. And then Ralph Branca was called in from the bullpen. Ralph Branca was a, a, a great, great pitcher, by the way we had always thought, and he was a practicing Catholic, Branca, an Italian, probably an Italian name, 
We learned later on in his career that his mother was Jewish and that he identified as partly Jewish and, and, and partly Italian. Irrelevant to this story. Um, uh, Bobby Thompson comes up to bat um, and uh, two men on and hits a three-run homer, walk-off homer, wins the pennant for the New York Giants, and that's when I first became an agnostic. Uh, I'm about to go to synagogue and pray, and this is what is happening? Dodgers losing the pennant. So this is a ball signed by Bobby Thompson and Ralph uh, Branca to remind me of a terrible, terrible time. Uh, then the Dodgers um, uh, finally won a World Series. They had never won a World Series before. So they finally won a World Series in 1955. It was my first semester in college. I had been a terrible high school student, and so I swore that I would do well in college. I barely made it into college by the skin of my teeth. I was turned down on grades, uh, but you could take a test in those days, an objective test, graded objectively, and I aced the test and made it into college where I finished at the top of my, my class with all kind of honors and, you know, some uh, cum laude and, and Phi Beta Kappa and all that, having been, you know, uh, as my mother would say, summa cum surus at, at high school, uh, filled with, with difficulties. Um, and I, I, I finished like, I don't know, 40th out of a class of 50 uh, in high school, oh, 10 people behind me, not, not very many. But then I went off to college and decided to do well, but then the Dodgers won the pennant. And so I, I, I devoted all of my time to the World Series of 1955, which the Dodgers won. And this is the moment the Dodgers won, the moment the Dodgers won the World Series. And it has um, um, Johnny Padres, who was the pitcher, uh, and Roy Campanella, who was the catcher, uh, jumping on Johnny Padres and congratulating him. And it's signed by Duke Snyder, Carl Ferrillo, Pee Wee Reese. Um, I can't even read this name. Carl Erskine, who's still alive, the only remaining Dodger from that era who's still alive. Sandy Kopax, uh, who grew up uh, a block away from me in, in Borough Park, Don Newcomb. So this is one of my favorite pictures of, of joy and happiness when the Brooklyn Dodgers finally won the World Series. And this, by the way, is an original Brooklyn Dodger pin, which I bought for 25 cents um, the year they won the National League Championship. It was the championship uh, button. I couldn't afford a ring in those days. But um, when the Dodgers won the World Series in 1955, I was joyous. And uh, uh, then recently, when I was able to afford it, I was able to buy the 1955 World Series ring uh, that was given to the Dodgers for winning their first and only uh, World Series. This ring does have a name in it. It was owned by Don Zimmer, uh, who was the second baseman, who was actually uh, on the field uh, in Game 7 when the Dodgers beat the Yankees. And this is the World Series ring that was given to uh, the Dodgers. Today, um, when a team wins the World Series or wins the, the pennant, um, they make a lot of rings for, you know, everybody who works on the team, everybody who's associated with the team. Usually teams have multiple owners. Um, but back in the day when the Dodgers won in 55 and won the pennant in, in 1947, usually there were only 30 or 40 rings made, 25 for the players, the coaches, that was it. 
But things are different now. And when the Boston Red Sox won the World Series in 2018, um, I was able to, uh, the owners of the team, allowed me to buy one of the World Series rings. So I own um, a, a World Series ring from the Boston Red Sox. Uh, it's, it's an enormous ring. I, you know, I find it hard to wear. When I go to Yankee Stadium sometimes to watch a game, I wear it just to, just to show off with Yankee fans. Because, of course, the Dodgers almost always and the Red Sox almost always uh, played against the Yankees. They were the, they were the, the, the arch rivals. So, so I have rings from the Brooklyn Dodgers, rings from the Boston Red Sox, and, and these were uh, really important to me. I'm also a basketball fan, and I found this ball to be quite intriguing. This is a baseball, a baseball, not a basketball, but it's signed by the entire Boston Celtics baseball team, uh, basketball team. It's signed by Red Auerbach. Uh, it's signed by Bill Russell, the greatest uh, uh, Celtic who ever played, maybe the greatest basketball player who ever paid, played, uh, Bill Sharman, uh, uh, who, who else? Uh, Tommy Heinsohn. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the team. Bob Cousy, uh, uh, Havlicek. Uh, it's uh, a great, great, for me, a great memento uh, having a baseball signed by my basketball heroes. Uh, at the time, this team was winning championships, I think 18 of them. Uh, Bill Russell, I think, has 11 championship rings. I know he has more rings than he has fingers. Um, I was going to those games. I saw Russell and Cousy. I became friendly with Russell, Cousy, Havlicek, um, and some of the other players, uh, Larry Bird. Um, I was a very close friend of Red Arback, and so I would sit next to Red at the games, and all the players would, of course, come over. And then usually we'd have a dinner uh, before the game, I'd bring him a pastrami sandwich from a local deli, and we would sit. And then after the game, we would have drinks, particularly if we won. If we lost, we didn't. But in those days, it was rare for the Boston Celtics to lose a home game. Um, things have changed quite a bit. There are no more Red Arbacks, no more Bill Russells. Uh, but, um, you know, the Celtics are still a, a fun team to watch. Um, I love sports. Um, I, I, I love going to ball games. Uh, one more memento that you might be interested. This is the signature of everybody who was involved in making the movie, The Babe Ruth Story, which was a great, great movie with uh, William Bendix playing uh, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth actually appeared in a movie playing himself uh, in a movie, The Lou Gehrig Story. It was called Pride of the Yankees. As, as you probably know, Lou Gehrig died very young from Lou Gehrig's disease, from uh, a neurological disorder. And they made a movie of his life, um, and, um, and Babe Ruth played himself. In this movie, he didn't play himself, but he, he's, everybody who was in the movie, uh, every director, every star, signed this memento, and Babe Ruth's signature is front and center on this. So, you know, one point I really have to make, it's a little bit political, but today you have to choose sides. Um, 
politically. You're either for Trump or against them. You're either Republican or Democrat. And if you're a Republican, everything the Democrats do is wrong. And if you're a Democrat, everything you do with the Republicans is, is wrong. That wasn't the case when we were fervent baseball and even basketball fans. Uh, when I was a fervent Brooklyn Dodger fan, um, but when Stan Musial came up to bat for the St. Louis Cardinals, I would stand up and give him a standing ovation because he was one of the great players of all time. When Joe DiMaggio came up to bat when the Yankees and the Dodgers played in the World Series, again, I wasn't at the games, but I was cheering him uh, on as a player. Then when I was old enough and wealthy enough to go to games, uh, I would root for the Red Sox, um, but I would cheer Jeter and, and, and Mariano Rivera and, uh, you know, the great, the great New York Yankees. And when I went to Yankee games, there were Yankee fans who would stand up and cheer when some of the great Red Sox, Big Poppy, would, would come up. I was at Big Poppy's last game, and he got standing ovations from everybody, even people whose heart he broke um, the year that the Yankees were ahead three games to nothing, and Big Poppy helped bring them out of a three-nothing uh, uh, loss, um, and and won the they won they won eight games in a row. They won four games uh, to, to overtake the Yankees, winning four to three, and then they won the next four games in the World Series. Uh, remarkable, remarkable uh, feat, remarkable accomplishment. So, sports tells us an enormous amount about about uh, character and about history. And so I'm, I'm proud to have a, a sports collection in addition to my collection of, of constitutional um, items. Uh, you may have noticed that um, uh, I wear a strange tie. Uh, this is my cheating tie. If I'm ever arguing a case in the court and they ask me about the Constitution, I don't remember something, I can always just look it up on my tie. This is a tie that has the text of the Constitution of the United States on it. Obviously, I don't wear it for that reason. I wear it because I love the Constitution. I've devoted much of my life to defending the Constitution, and much of the criticism I've gotten over my life has been for my defense of the Constitution on behalf of unpopular uh, people. So, you know, I believe in the adversary system of justice, and I believe in the adversary system of sports. Um, I'm, I'm, I also... I'm not a traditionalist. I like the changes that have been made uh, to baseball um, uh, recently. I like having a pitch clock. Uh, I like uh, limiting the number of times that a pitcher can throw to uh, a base where there's a, a runner. Um, I like, I, the one thing I don't like is I don't like the rule that doesn't allow shifts. I like shifts. I used to like when players were shifted uh, because I would think that a good player could beat the shift every time. And, you know, when everybody was on the second base side, a good player should have been able to drop a bunt down the third base line. But that never happened. And so, you know, the shift worked and worked too well. It kept batting averages low. And since the shift has been abolished, batting averages have risen somewhat. I think more for righties than lefties, but uh, there's big debates going on about that. But you know, I taught a course uh, at Harvard called The Law of Baseball. I taught it with um, uh, the president uh, of the Boston Red Sox, Larry Lucchino, who's a lawyer, who I first met when he was a lawyer, and then he became a baseball executive, a great baseball executive. And he and I taught a course together. And the last uh, class always took place on Fenway Park and in the owner's box. 
And after we taught our last class, the students would watch the game and often they would come home with a baseball sign or something like that. So you can imagine how many students signed up for that class. I was only able to take 15, but I think once we got like 800 students uh, who signed up for 15 spaces, because, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a graded course. I wasn't going to give students grades on their acuity in baseball law, but it was a course that uh, people just loved. And, uh, you know, we went into a lot of things relating to economic aspects of baseball, um, uh, players' unions, and uh, usually I would have people come to the house. We, we sometimes gave the seminar at the house, and players um, uh, would come to the house, player representatives, and um, uh, meet the students, and um, the students enjoyed meeting the players, but the players enjoyed meeting the students. And every year I was invited by the manager of the Red Sox to come to the dugout uh, and the, 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 where the players uh, locker room um, before the game, a couple hours before the game, and give them a seminar on law. And they would love it. And the smartest guy in the class invariably was Big Poppy. Guy was absolutely brilliant. He knew everything. You know, it, it, I've concluded, I've represented a lot of athletes. I've known a lot of athletes, obviously. You know I represented Mike Tyson and O.J. Simpson. And I've represented others, some of whom I can't disclose the names of uh, because their cases uh, uh, were successfully defended to the point where nobody has ever learned about them. But the one thing I learned meeting baseball players uh, is that to be a great athlete, you have to be really, really, really smart. Um, uh, Hank Aaron taught me something. I may have mentioned this before, but it's worthy to mention again. Uh, he was at a dinner that my wife and I were at where honorary degrees were being granted uh, by, by Harvard. And uh, whoever organized the table sat my wife next to Hank Aaron. My wife is a baseball fan, but not like me. She knew who Hank Aaron was because she had gone to school in Atlanta, uh, Emory University, but I was dying to be sitting next to him and my wonderful wife. After the first course, just quietly changed seats with me and I ended up next to Hank Aaron. And the first question I asked him, I said, look, you're not the most athletic looking guy in, in the world and you're not, you know, the fastest runner and uh, the sleekest uh, player. But, you know, at that time he was the home run champion and uh, an incredible home run hitter. I said, how do you do it? He said, Alan, do you remember when you were a kid, you used to play the game of odds and evens when you, uh, you know, were, were, who's going to go first in a baseball game or a basketball game? You go one size three, shoot, one size three, shoot. And you'd have to know whether or not the other person is going to put out a one or a two. If you knew they were putting out a one and you had evens, you would put out a one. If you knew that he was putting out a two, you'd put out a two if you had odds. The exact opposite. And Hank Aaron told me, he said, I was the best player when it came to odds and evens of anybody because I could anticipate whether my opponent was going to put out one or two because I had watched them choose and I saw that pattern and I could figure it out. And that was one of my talents. I said, well, what does it have to do with uh, baseball? He says, that's everything to do with baseball. Because in baseball, it's between one and two. Either your opponent, who's a pitcher, is going to do a one, which is a fastball, or he's going to do a two, which is a curveball. Now today you have all kinds of different variations of the curveball um, and even of the, of the fastball, but back in the day, it was a one or a two. 
And he said, I studied even before there were films. I studied pitchers. I watched them during the game. I could see what their pattern is. Sometimes they threw two fastballs in a row. Sometimes they alternated. And I was really, really good in anticipating whether it was going to be a fastball or a curveball. And once you can anticipate it, you can knock it out of the ballpark. Of course, going back to Bobby Thompson, it is still alleged. It is still alleged by Brooklyn Dodger fans. We're talking it's now, what, 72 years later? And it's still being argued whether or not Bobby Thompson uh, stole the signs uh, or was given the signs by somebody in the grandstands from the Giants organization that had binoculars and uh, figured out a way of communicating what he saw, the one or the two. Remember in those days, catchers would just go one or two. Today, catchers, you know, wear, wear electronic devices in which they can directly communicate with the pitcher. So it's harder to steal signs, uh, except maybe, maybe electronically, which so far hasn't happened yet. But there's still a debate about whether or not Bobby Thompson uh, had the advantage of knowing whether or not Ralph Branco was going to throw a fastball or a curveball. We'll never know the answer to that question. And it was one of the great moments in sports history. The shot heard round the world. I'll never forget that day, 72 years ago. And I will never forget it. Sometimes, you know, sports images are just indelibly placed in your mind. You know, everybody remembers where they were when John F. Kennedy was killed. I certainly remember, because I was a law clerk in the Supreme Court and was assigned to be the law clerk to tell the justices who were then in conference, secret conference. They always met secretly on Friday. Nobody was allowed in. I was the one who had to tell them that John Kennedy was shot. We didn't know he was dead. They came to my little office, watched on television, because I was the only person who had a television in the Supreme Court because I was a sports fan and it was only a month and a half after the World Series. I never take my television home. And so they came and watched and I saw Walter Cronkite announce that John Kennedy had died and uh, Wizard White cried and some of the other justices were just distraught. And then the Chief Justice told all the justices to disperse and go to secret locations in case there was a Lincoln-like plot um, to assassinate other members of the government, left the law clerks behind uh, to do that. So, you know, sports have played a very important role in my, in my life um, beyond just rooting. Um, many, many uh, issues of sports uh, for me have reflected periods of time in my life of, um, of importance. And so when I hold in my hand a Babe Ruth signed ball with Mo Berg or a Jackie Robinson signed ball, or the Brooklyn Dodgers 1955 World Series ring, it just brings back incredible memories and incredible nostalgia. And um, as my wife likes to tell me, I live too much in the past. I am a nostalgia person. I love schmoozing with people about the past. And I love, ladies and gentlemen who watch my uh, Dirt Show, I love schmoozing with you about my memorabilia whether it be sports memorabilia or constitutional memorabilia. We'll do another show on these issues when it is warranted. Uh, see you soon. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.